The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. When Claire Wills was in her 20s, she discovered she had a cousin that she'd never met. Born in a mother and baby home in 1950s Ireland, Mary grew up in an institution not very far from the farm where Claire spent happy childhood summers, yet she was never told of that cousin's existence. Seeking to examine her family history, it led Claire to write her latest book, which is a, a brilliant exposition, not just of her own, her own family, but of a general narrative throughout many Irish families. It's called Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets. And Claire is with me now in studio. This is a terrific book. Thank you. I, Thank you. you know, when I saw what uh, was offered on the blurb, I thought, is this another mother and baby home book? It's not. I, I hope it's not. No, not at all. Uh, I wanted to understand the history of the mother and baby homes from the point of view of the families who were involved with them, you know. So I start with a family that I know very well, um, my own family, but, you know, my grandmother is your grandmother, my cousin is your cousin. I really think I'm, I'm trying to talk about how a whole culture, a whole set of communities... Um, my question was why... Why did people feel that the mother and baby homes were the, was the best solution? Yeah, but, but that's the point, that you point out that in earlier times, there were Irish solutions to Irish problems. Absolutely. There might be a child born to the eldest girl who would be raised not as her child, but as her sister. As her sister or as an aunt or, you, you know, all kinds of informal ways of managing, um, you, you know, se- sexual lives. Um, one of the things I try and trace in the book is what it was like growing up in Victorian Ireland, where, you know, particularly for women who had so little power, almost no autonomy, no control over, over what might happen to them. And what grew up, I think, was a kind of, a kind of um, culture of secrecy, which was also a culture of care. It was how women could look after each other. They could say, you know, I'll help you out here. We won't, we won't say anything. We'll, yeah, we'll and, deal and with the a- baby might be handed to a relative to yeah, be raised exactly. and the identity would never uh, be perhaps revealed or if it was revealed, it might even be an accidental revelation or a vindictive re- revelation. But yeah, the, one of the main themes um, you, you, that comes through from reading the book is that the Victorians, we characterise them as prudish, conservative, uh, sexually inactive, except f- for the, you know, the yeah, production of a family. Which I think is absolutely You suggest nonsense, nonsense that nonsense. they were up to it like everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Irish men and women were not differently made from women, m- men and women elsewhere. You know, um, one of, demographers argue that one of the most common ways of making a marriage happen in, you know, the period of the 1870s and 1880s in rural Ireland was for a woman to get pregnant. Now, you say that that happened. It was a risky but common road to marriage. Exactly, exactly. Because you couldn't be sure that what you had hoped for would happen. No, you couldn't be sure. But if you were, you, you know, if you were an established couple, everybody knew you were courting. You know, how would you move the narrative on? How would you get people to say, OK, you know, if you get married, you can live here. We'll move aside. You had, to, you know, getting pregnant was one way of kind of moving that story along. Now, uh, the example of your own family, and it's about the destructiveness of what happened once the state and the state was involved with county councils. For example, you talk about Bespra, where there were fee paying people. 
Yeah. And they were treated entirely differently to the people who were put there by the local county council. You know, the regime, they could, uh, you know, hang about waiting for their baby to be adopted if they were fee-paying. If they weren't fee-paying, they worked for a living in the kitchens. They had to stay. They had to stay for, you know, if we're talking about the 1950s, but possibly for two or three years until a, a solution was found for the child. Either it was adopted or fostered um, or sometimes you yeah. know, the and in passing, you advert to the fact that they were given, you know, the, their in-house name, which was not their own name necessarily at all. It was yeah. a way they would be addressed to almost dehumanise them. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's what I try and explore in the book is what happens when a kind of informal culture of secrecy and care becomes bureaucratized. So that actually, it's a bureaucratic thing, isn't it, to give someone a different name? We'll keep we'll keep this private, we'll keep this secret um, in, in, a, in a manner that is so against how ordinary human, you, you yeah. know, human relations work. So in, in the example of uh, your own family, and you talk about uh, your Uncle Jackie, who uh, was courting Lily. Lily uh, was uh, someone with a withered arm, not because she was you know had that in her DNA it was an accident at birth and then a bone setter got to work on Lily and left her with a withered arm for the rest of her life yeah and it meant that when she was in Bessborough giving birth to her child it was unlikely that her child would be adopted um, because of kind of fear of, of the stock yeah fear of the stock now you know I think we think of that as a very kind of Irish anxiety but people were wanting to adopt from America. And, you know, I think exactly the same fear was happening there. Uh, it's, not, it's not a particularly Irish notion that you would be worried about stock. Yeah. Um, then what happens is that Lily, because of her deformity, is deemed really not the stuff of marriage to Jackie, who was going to inherit the farm, which was now owned at this point in your family's history, was now owned by them. There was something to inherit. But Jackie has to go. Yeah, so Jackie goes to England and, you know, he goes to England along with, you know, hundreds and thousands of other Irish men at this point, many of whom I think may be have gone going partly for the same reason. Um, when I began thinking about this story, I was bothered by what seemed to be terrible double standards. You, you know, and there were terrible double standards. Some people got to belong and other people didn't get to belong. But I don't think it's as easy as saying the men had it all their own way and the women suffered. The, the women did suffer and the children did suffer. Um, but I think it was very hard for, for men as well in this situation. If I'm talking about a culture where people felt the mother and baby homes were the right thing to do. And therefore, how could they resist? It was very hard to resist, I think. Um, when we talk about uh, Jackie, your uncle, I mean, it could have been, uh, even then, if your grandmother, who kept so many secrets, um, if she had said, yeah, why don't you marry Lily? But Lily was deemed somehow wrong mm. because of her withered arm, not worthy to be the mistress of the house that Jackie would inherit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But again, I want to say... This story is not just about my family. That happened in my family, but something similar, I'll bet, happened in yours. I mean, 57,000 children 
were born in mother and baby homes at the lowest estimate between 1922 and 1998, probably more like 70,000. Every single one of those children had grandparents, three, four of them. They had mothers, fathers, they had aunts, uncles, there were nuns working in the institutions. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of people who were concerned about a kind of concerned about a bunch of things, illegitimacy, about inheritance, about kind of Catholic sense of shame, about sexual shame. I've told the story of one family, but I've told it. I really want to, I really believe that we need to move beyond a sense of who was responsible and think instead about answerability If we think, you know, when the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes reported four years ago, one of the things it said was, you know, the report starts off by saying, principal responsibility for the women who end up in these homes lies with the parents of the girls who got pregnant and the fathers of their children. And what they meant by that was a kind of attempt to shift blame away from the church and the state onto families. And it seems to me it doesn't tell us anything doesn't tell us why families would do that and it doesn't help us understand families. I think responsibility isn't the way to think about it but instead how are we as the inheritors of that world? You know I grew up in England uh, but I still think I'm the inherit, I have inherited that world and I'm answerable to it. Now, um, you yourself uh, found yourself at the age of 25, a a graduate, a single mother. I did. Um, (laughs) So you wonder, you muse at some points, you know, is this running families almost? What about your grandmother? I mean, was uh, the birth of her child, you know, 40 weeks after her wedding date or perhaps not? Well, exactly. You know, in fact, the story I I kind of uncover in, in the book is that over at least four generations and possibly five. We were all having babies outside of wedlock. And, you know, I love that fact. I think it means that we were not ashamed of love and sex, and love and sex is not shameful. But at different moments, there were different ways of handling it, and some of them led led people into errors, into mistakes that ended up being destructive. Now, at what point? I mean, is there a, a decade or a period in time when the state and the clergy got involved. I mean, you, you mentioned at one point about, uh, you know, a, a young girl being delivered to the Vesper or wherever it might be. And because there, was, there were no cars, it would be the priest in his car yeah. who'd be delivering this child, not the father or the mother. Um, but that also cloaks the whole thing in secrecy as well, because there's no identification of the adult Absolutely. in the room, as it were, because the adult is not in the room. The adult's a at home. Do you identify a, a time when suddenly that became the norm rather than the Irish solutions to the Irish problems uh, to, to which we referred earlier? Well, I, yeah, I, I think um, as the church built up the institutions in the t- 30s and 40s, um, that bureaucracy, massive bureaucracy with, you know, literally tens of thousands of people working in it, ended up kind of separating ordinary families from from their own problems, as it were. Um, and I, I, I think the church and the state, they, they seemed to offer a solution to families. But in fact, it was a kind of Faustian pact. You'd end up, 
you ended up with loss. Um, the, the other thing you, you talk, I mean, in terms of the state getting involved, it could be um, well-intentioned, really, for, for many of them. There was dire poverty in Ireland, and the idea of an unmarried woman being able to manage with a child was, it, it was going to be very tough. Yeah, look, that's true. But on the other hand, you know, why wasn't there an unmarried mother's allowance? You could have tried it that way. You could have tried to actually support women uh, to live lives that they wanted to live. Rather but don't than... you know the argument would have been you're encouraging them well, exactly. by giving them this allowance, for God's sake. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't have been. You'd have been looking after them. Uh, it's a fabulous book. It's called Missing Persons or My Grandmother's Secrets. And uh, people will have to read the book to delve into all of Grandmother Molly's secrets. But it's author Claire Wills. Claire, thank you very much thank for you. joining us in studio today. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.